Mary Shellman is formerly the director of Harvard Business School's agribusiness program, and today she works helping organizations of all sizes navigate complex industry issues and identify growth pathways in food and agriculture. She serves on the advisory boards of Crop Enhancement and Village Capital and is a venture partner at Radical Growth, which is an ag tech fund based in California. And uh, we were talking before we started recording, Mary, and I know you grew up in Kentucky. You're back home this week at the farm where you grew up. And so we're so happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Nate. So Mary, you spoke at our Trust in Food Symposium back on January 23rd in Chicago, and you really helped set the stage for that conversation, thinking about just the rapid pace of change underway in the food industry, thinking through changing consumer preferences. And so I want you to talk a little bit about maybe some of the disruptions in the food system that you're watching most closely this year, because obviously you've been doing this for quite some time. And I'm curious maybe how things have changed or what you're seeing that you're really paying attention to. Right, Nate. Well, as, uh, as we talked about in Chicago, you know, this is a, a time of tremendous change. And you know, I've been involved in one way or the other. And I would say the, the agri-food business, you know, all my life, my my dad was a farm equipment dealer and then uh, bought farms when I was in middle school. So, uh, you know, so kind of grew up in that space and then have, have managed to follow it through all the way from basically, you know, farm to fork kind of operations through my career, ending it with the last uh, 11 years at Harvard, really looking at trends on a global level, um, things that impact the system. And I must say that, you know, the, the system that we're in now is, is like it's being uh, challenged from all sides, which makes it very interesting and I think very uh, maybe challenging for, for companies and producers to navigate. You know, when you think today, you know, three things in particular that I would call out, you know, one is, uh, is technology and the tremendous impact it's having from the, you know, again, the farm to all the way to the fourth level. We could talk more about that. Um, the impact of new investors who are excited about this uh, this industry for maybe the first time ever, and um, not just in buying land, but being engaged in food businesses and looking at putting together you know supply chains again with that idea of connecting farm to fourth. In fact, maybe the the, the one um, change that continues to be the more perplexing um, is this change in the the food consumer. So, you know, when you kind of tie that together and you say, what's really going on? What, what am I following and continue to follow? It's really, you know, the, the changes in, the, in, you know, what people buy, you know, where they buy it, and it's how they buy it. And um, so that makes for a very dynamic environment. Absolutely. And all of those changes really are, you know, coming at a time on the row crop side when we have you know, low commodity prices. But to your point, Mary, there's so much to be excited about, whether it's the row crop space with technology or produce or livestock. I mean, there's there's just so much going on. And I'm wondering, you know, for our audience, we we talk about not just, you know, farming, ranching and growing, but also more broadly about changes and trends in the food industry, whether that's food manufacturers or food retailers. And so amid all of this excitement, you mentioned, you know, the, the greatest dynamic being sort of the consumer changing needs. 
what are the most nimble companies, in your opinion, in the food industry doing in response to those changing preferences among consumers? I, that's, a, that's an interesting you know, question, right? Because in some ways, we're, you, know, you might say that we're not really seeing any particular nimble companies yet, the companies are striving to become nimble, and we think about the typical, um, you know, the big food companies that existed for so many years. I was just reading about Nestle again this morning in the Wall Street Journal. You know, Nestle's uh, continues to be challenged in their traditional businesses, say, of ice cream and chocolate and, you know, all those branded products that we see. Um, you know, you think about General Mills with their, their cereal products. Again, you know, where has breakfast gone? You know, we used to be touted as the most important meal of the day, and now it seems like, you know, breakfast has basically, you know, just has disappeared into all these new things. So, you know, I think, you know, maybe nimble is not the word I use. I would say, you know, where are the most, uh, you know, some, some of the most interesting entries coming in, and a lot of that's coming in on the, uh, you know, the new companies or the newer companies that come in. I think also if we look at um, back into kind of the, the more traditional food companies, you have a company like Haynes Celestial, which is basically, um, you know, so two, two, $3 billion in sales, but basically a portfolio of brands and companies rather than, you know, one big brand that goes across, uh, you know, many different categories. So it used to be when um, when I worked here, I talked about the power of the umbrella brand. So, um, you know, so a Nestle brand that goes across. Well, today, that that's the trust is, it seems like it's no longer in that big brand anymore. The, um, you know, consumers are you know, taking more power back in that decision making and uh, taking that power back because they have more ways to get information. They're actively seeking information. The sources of information they turn to are different than in the past. Um, so, you know, I would say that the most, if you were going to be a nimble company, it's, it's ones that are using technology, particularly, you know, like data analytics to really, you know, to dig in and understand these consumers, but it's also using technology to, um, to engage across the supply chain, basically, you know, that farm to fork connection. You think of a company like Driscoll's, the biggest uh, berry company in the world, um, the fact that, you know, uh, they sell over a billion clamshells of berries a year and every um, bottom of every pack has a unique code that they can trace that particular, that clamshell back to, you know, the, the farm or the ranch that berry was grown on and the time it was, was grown and basically almost back to the picker that picked that berry. So, um, you know, so I think that, you know, the nimble companies are the ones that are really, you know, thinking about that, you know, looking more strongly who the consumer is and how they connect, but also using technology across the supply chain to really, you know, to, to get much better alignment. Absolutely. So certainly technology, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, companies that are integrating the ability for consumers to trace that product's path from the field all the way to their table you know, the ability to add efficiency through that kind of uh, innovative packaging. I'm wondering though, you know, Mary, one thing we talked about before we started recording was this idea that even though there are, you know, tremendous challenges, particularly for larger food companies, there's also the opportunity to use that kind of scale for good, whether that means, you know, lowering environmental footprint on a very large scale, or you know, responding if, if they can be nimble to your point about how they might go about doing that using technology, you know, using that to influence a broad base of people. I mean, where I guess where are we headed as it relates to 
just using that scale for good and, and, and looking for opportunities to do that and then convince consumers that good can be done, even if it's a large company that's, that's behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's the most challenging thing I think that, that's going on today in the system is, the, you know, what is scale and what does scale mean? You know, historically, um, think about how it seemed like, you know, really what satisfied the needs of a, a shopper at the store was, or the supermarket, or, you know, buying, you know, food for the week, meals for the week, is that it be, you know, basically safe, of course, you know, safe. Um, convenient and inexpensive and today and all of those things can be achieved better through scale you can have you know efficiency efficiency of you know of manufacturing you know the costs come down you can afford to put in very strong food safety systems when you have a large operation you have the ability to pay for it now it seems like today we have that but yet on the other side there was um, you know, scale also came into the equation that, you know, the companies, the traditional models into engaging with the supermarket, they're how to get the products on the shelf. Shelf were also favored this scale because it was the very large companies and the very large brands that could afford to pay the slotting fees that retailers today ask for in order to get access to the consumer. So, in some ways, then, so scale starts to have a negative side to it because scale now can be used to block out newer, um, you know, younger interests that have, you know, products with, with different attributes. Um, you know, it, but yet today, so I think there's been a big pushback, a rejection of that scale because the other thing that happened is that we saw a lot of brand proliferation. So, you know, you think about innovation and so you had yet one more flavor variety of a cereal on the shelf that was basically just a sweeter version, a version with more fat, saltier, you know, much more processed, and so maybe not as healthy as um, as it could be. And because of that, you know, consumers kind of have backed away from that now, and they said, wait a minute, we actually don't think these big companies have our interest at heart anymore, so they've walked away from scale, but yet on the other side, again, we come back to this. We know that scale actually means that you can undertake big projects in terms of, say, um, improving our environmental outcomes. Uh, you know, a big company can afford to put together, you know, and manage a very robust supply chain. So, um, you know, kind of coming back to that conundrum, you know, and you said, well, how do we convince consumers of this? I think convincing is not the right word. I think the I, the whole thing revolves around trust, which um, which was you know congratulations again for putting together this incredibly important program on trust in food. Oh, thank you. Because so how do we help um, you know just you know the the public and I hate you know, consumers seem so like a dot on the piece, but it's people. How do we help people have more trust in their food system again? And not just trust in small farms, you know, or the, the farmer that they see at the farmer's market, but trust in the, the larger farming operations, trust in, you know, the larger um, food co companies. It was actually, uh, you know, the, the presentation I heard from um, McDonald's that was talking about, you know, how can McDonald's help, you know, use their scale for good because they can actually lead the way on many changes. And some of those changes aren't necessarily um, ones that that might be as comfortable for growers or, you know, producers as they would like to see because um, that idea about, you know, we, we know how to run our business 
we know how to do this very well and very efficiently. We've been doing it for years. We have all the information. But yeah, but yet now the consumer at the end of the chain is actually asking for something different, not just asking, but demanding something different. So, you know, the ability to, of McDonald's to kind of translate those needs back down the chain, but at the same time, um, trying to bring in that idea that, you know, just because you, you know, Mr. or Ms. Shopper want something doesn't actually mean that's the best thing. I think that's where we're, we're caught up into this. So you have, you know, the argument, you know, the, the debates over, you know, GMOs or cage-free eggs or, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the antibiotic, antibiotic-free meats that we see coming out. Absolutely. Well, and I appreciate your sort of taking the time to walk us through some of the dynamics. And I think you're right that the issue is not trying to convince people. It's not an either or situation. We can have, you know, smaller farms and larger farms. We can have big multinational companies and smaller niche brands that can be responsive to these needs. And to your point earlier with the technology that we have, you know, that opportunity is afforded to a lot more people with the capacity to to pay for that technology and to integrate it and be responsive and you know it's not just about the technology and the tools but also about the communications because to your point it is about trust and i wonder if there's something you know of the things we've talked about or maybe there are issues that we haven't even touched on but is there anything in particular that surprises you about the food industry today, uh, whether it's you know the pace of disruption, the smaller brand affinity that some younger consumers in particular are moving toward, or maybe something entirely different? Well, I certainly think the pace of disruption is um, is very interesting. Again, you know, we talk about these these changes. Who is it? You know, maybe Bill Gates said, you know, always underestimate the change that happens or overestimate the. The change is going to happen in two years, but you underestimate the change is going to happen in 10 years. Um, back la last July or June, that was actually 10 years since the first iPhone had been introduced. And it, you think about the dramatic change that's happened to our lives, you know. Right. Um, you know, now all of the things that have been able because for now, you know, I don't call, have to pick up the phone and call a taxi or wave my hand. I can get <laughs> Uber, you know, I can... Uh, uh, you know, I can order my pizza from Domino's from my phone. Now I can talk to Alexa, you know, and just, oops, Alexa's in the other room here, <laughs> the Amazon device. So in there and actually, you know, and just have, have it shown up. So I think that is a, is a great thing. And, you know, so that disruption is peak. The, the other part that continues to challenge me, though, is that, you know, why every, you know, there's some in the system that are still struggling with um, wanting to, to fully take part in the idea of, you know, transparency, traceability, alignment. So, you know, we think about, say, in the, you know, in the, in the, you know, the beef industry, you know, still conversations over, you know, animal ID and being able to follow that through the system. I told you about Driscoll's who puts a, you know, a tag on every, unique tag on every, package of berries that it sells and they actually ask consumers for that package of berries come online and tell me what you thought about it tell me in real time hmm. because if i get that information back they can go back to the field and if those berries start to go out of quality for some reason they can get out of that field they can tell that farmer who's growing for them and this is not controlled they use contract growers um or you know independent growers actually not even under contract they're independent growers who are growing driscoll's varieties and they, they say to that, you know, to that grower, you've got to get out of that field now, or maybe we could take these berries because quality is, 
is a little, the condition's a little softer, let's put them to, um, you know, to a much closer market. Let's not ship them from California to Boston, where they spend three days on a truck. Let's ship them to San Francisco or to Washington. So, um, so I'm still a little perplexed about the fact that, you know, um, that this sharing of information is um, not seen as a positive hmm. in all, you know, all the way across the chain. That's a really interesting point, Mary, and that's something that we've sort of talked about too, is sort of, I guess, trying to identify how much do consumers really want to know or how much do they need to know, at, you know, to the point to which you reach that trust. And, you know, we live, in, to your point earlier, in, a, in an age when we can collect all of this data, and obviously there are lots of conversations going on. In agriculture, especially on the row crop side, but certainly in other sectors of the agriculture industry, about how do we number one get data from the field to the supply chain, and then how do we eventually communicate that success story of you know conservation practices or sustainability to the consumer? Um, do you have any sense, or have you seen any research with regard to at what point you know how much? data do we provide to consumers or how do we bundle that before it becomes almost too much? Right. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, just because we say that this, this you know, that we should have the experience, it doesn't mean consumers actually are looking for it. Um, I know whenever, uh, you know, those, those fancy, you know, codes that were introduced on the bottom where you scanned with your phone. Oh, sure. QR codes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, QR codes. You know, everybody thought this was going to be the answer to everything, and it turned out, you know, kind of not a single person ever scans it. <laughs> I think the idea there is you want the data to be available there to have trust. It means that you know the data is there in case you choose to look at it mm, as mm -hmm. a consumer. It's not the fact that I want to access it every single time. Um, you know, consumers don't have time. I don't have time to look at that. But what I want is that to know that it exists, that, you know, that people are, you know, talking to each other and sharing each other. Um, the, you know, I think the, the challenge that you brought up, though, is that, you know, how do we, you know, it's, um, how do we use that data then to um, con convince or to convey, I mm. use the word convey, or tell stories to consumers that, um, you know, that, that, that the good things that are being done. And that kind of gets back to me about why the information has to be there, because I think for good things to, done, to get done and to be able to tell that story to consumers with any sense of reliability and credibility is you actually have to measure it. Right. So it's not enough to say, oh, on my farm, I'm doing, you know, I'm managing it very sustainably. And I know that because every year, you know, the yields either go up or this. It's, what you need is to actually have the measurements every single year to show that you're getting better. Right, right. Um, and, you know, and that's why you have to measure things. Yes, <laughs> you have yes. To start by measuring it. And you have to not just, you know, kind of like, you know, look at it and say, oh, yes, you know, I'm sustainable. Um, so it's that data piece. And it's, you know, not necessarily that that has to share, but it has to be there to back it up. And I guess I, I would point to a program that um, the country of Ireland introduced back in 2012. And it's called Origin Green. Now, or you know, Ireland, small country, um, that has had an amazing success in their their agricultural sector. They went basically, and you know, the 1800s. We all remember the potato famine. We don't remember it, but we've heard about sure. the Irish potato famine. And basically, a million people died, and a million people were forced to immigrate 
out of like a population of three million. It was a, it was a huge thing. And basically, you know, the country which was very dependent on potatoes, you know, monoculture um, was was wiped out. And since then, now they've gone to being a, a you know an agricultural. You know, you might call them a powerhouse. You know, four and a half million people, but producing enough food to you know to feed you know many many more people than that, many more times than their population. And um, and they've done that by, by really um, putting a lot of priority on the agricultural sector. And into, but yet, they're small. The farms are small. The average you know, farm size is like, you know, 45 acres or so. Sure. Um, you know, the average herd size for dairy, their big dairy producer, is not a lot of cows. It's not like our thousand cow operation. Mm. Maybe, you know, 100, 150 cows. So, you know, from a cost standpoint, from a competitiveness standpoint, they're never going to be the low-cost producer because they're coming from, you know, such a fragmented environment. And they realize that in order to be able to get a premium for their products in the marketplace and continue to get market access to, uh, to growing markets, that they really need to be able to tell the story of how they were, were getting better. They decided to position the entire country, um, their agri, you know, the agri-food sector around sustainability. And so they introduced this program called Origin Green, and it's um, with the goal to have 100% of Irish food and drink exports coming out from from Origin Green verified suppliers. Hmm. And the program starts at the farm level with audits, with farm level audits of the beef farms, the dairy farms, pork farms, all of this. And um, they've been doing some of these for quite a long time because they introduced a quality assurance program back in the... Uh, in the 2000s, it was at the farm level. So they added on dimensions at the farm level. They added on a carbon calculator. They added on a, uh, a measure of biodiversity. They added on a measure of water use. And so farms are audited, and then it goes to manufacturers. The product goes to manufacturers in the supply chain who make commitments um, that are relative to their business. So there's not like a checklist of here's what you need to do. It's like, no, you know, our business, we're involved in, you know, beef processing. So the most important things for us are, you know, like, you know, um, to, you know, it might be to reduce our carbon footprint, and that means we have to work down the supply chain to reduce our carbon footprint. So they make... Uh, manufacturers make commitments in the area of raw materials and the areas of you know, kind of environmental, their own environmental footprint, and then on the um, social sustainability side, so things mm. like workforce engagement and health. And and they really worked inside the country to align everything and get this program rolled out to the point that today, like 96% of the food and drink exports coming out of Ireland are coming from Origin Green Verified Suppliers. Wow. Um, so the big question is, is who pays for that, right? Right, right. Um, that's always you say, it's, oh, right, you know, you do these sustainability things, but the consumers aren't willing to pay for it. And, and I think that that's probably true, but what it does is it gets you market access. So you think about the situation now. You know, say if you're a company like McDonald's and you're suffering from the fact that, you know, you're losing sales because... You know, consumers just don't love you anymore, right? You know, sure. whatever your brand promise was. But yet, if you can tap into that, you know, that supply chain that says, here, look at all these great things that we're doing. We're measuring it. We're actually, um, Ireland published, has published two countrywide sustainability reports hmm. talking about the savings that they've achieved on the carbon side, the savings they've achieved on the water side, the improvements that they've been able to come up with biodiversity. And... You know, so aligning around that story has been tremendous in, in the sense of achieving market access. Um, Irish food and drink exports have actually gone up by 75% 
Wow. Since 2009. So between 2009 and 2017. So um, Origin Green was introduced in 2012. So, you know, not all of it to Origin Green, but, but I think a lot of it attributed to the fact that the industry was working together. And that was, you know, farm to fork, kind of working together, not just like all oh, the manufacturers are doing this, but <laughs> the entire supply chain was involved, policymakers were involved in, you know, um, you know, communicating this and supporting this with the right type of policy. So, um, you know, and there's, there's a trust story, right? There's right. A, you know, there, when you're able to invite people in and say, hey, come see us, you're concerned about your food. Um, and how it's produced, come see us, come look. We're so proud of our agricultural sector. You know, we're, you know, we're happy to invite you in. Um, so, you know, so that, that's something that, to me, that, that's quite a compelling case for, um, you know, how you can actually use this, uh, you know, the, kind of the data and the story to, to rebuild trust or to, to build trust. Right. And Mary, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to, to mention that because I think it's such a striking example of that sort of unified voice and unified focus when you can get an entire country. And granted, Ireland is not huge, like you said, four and a half million people, but getting the same people on the same page to have a consistent message about trust in food and here are the data points to demonstrate that and I'm wondering if we take it back home for a minute obviously the United States hundreds of millions of residents and a very you know a very rich diverse agricultural portfolio lots of different food companies um, high level of food security but a lot of challenges within that in terms of even getting the supply chain to talk among itself so what would you say would be for someone whether it's at a large food manufacturer or a farmer, what can they take from that Origin Green story and use that to start thinking differently about how they approach their business? Right. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, clearly, the you know, we're so diverse here in terms of, you know, approaches and um, the, you know, and so a lot of, I think, a lot of our challenges, you know, come from the very nature of the fact that, you know, there's a lot of uh, marketing conversations that go on out there. You know, think about, you know, what, you know, the, the Chipotle's or the, the Whole Foods and the, you know, they were some of the early conveyors of that premise that, you know, our, you know, the industrial food system is broken hmm. because they were looking to get customers. They were looking to get people in their store and clearly they tapped into a, you know, an area of concern. But I think at the same time, what they also did is they actually delivered a superior product, a superior product in the, in the terms of, you know, taste or freshness. Sure. Um, um, you know, maybe, you know, crafting yourself, you know, or the fact that it's, you know, prepared, you know, not just kind of, kind of at the, the front end of the chain, but a little more the back end of the chain piece of it. So, you know, so I think being able to, to tap into those stories, I don't think we can go out as, you know, maybe the U.S. and export market go out with a unified message and and I will say come back to the Ireland story because so much of their food is exported and they needed to drive exports that this was a B2B marketing story so if you talk to the typical Irish consumer um, now they're starting to get some spillovers from it and but they would also see in the paper the successes that Ireland was having Mm. in uh, positioning its food in other markets so when the Chinese premier came to visit Ireland he went to a dairy farm Mm-hmm. Um, you know that was like kind of the first stop, and and this was a, a constant theme from the very high level, um, you know, the politicians because it was a, important to their economy. Um, so for the lessons here, you know, I I would say, 
it's really identifying those, you know, being much more aware of where you are in the supply chain and, you know, kind of what's ahead of you and what's behind you and how you can work with that chain to come up with a story. Not every chain, you know, every place needs to position itself based on sustainability. That it happened to be, you know, Ireland, um, they had a competitive advantage there because they actually have, you know, land and water and they had a, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, more of a grass-based system. So that was a very natural story. But, um, but being able to, you know, for the chain to work together and align is, to me, the, you know, the big message I take away from this. It's, uh, you know, the idea about, you know, just kind of producing something anonymously and having it go into a big pile. I think those days are... You know, we're beyond those days. So the opportunities exist to differentiate on something, and maybe the differentiation is just based on the data that you collect if, hmm. you're, a, if you're a producer. Um, the fact that you have data, the fact that you can, um, you know, sell into a system or find that buyer that's interested in the fact that you have the data that can back it up, and if that, you know, becomes more and more predominant, then, you know, maybe you have a lot you know, into like you kind of decommoditize supply chains, but then it commoditizes again because the data becomes the new piece, you know, that's the new minimum table stakes in, in a commodity system. But I think we'd all be better off because then we could actually say, but look, this is what's happening at our farm level. You know, we're using right. resources more effectively. Here's the data to back it up. That's a great segue to sort of wrap up our podcast today, Mary, but I think if I could summarize what you were just talking about, it's do something, right? Consumer preferences are changing so quickly and we have to pivot. Like we don't have an option. And you mentioned Nestle earlier, you know, in the Wall Street Journal this week, we've had Nestle's CEO talking about we need to move farther faster. We need to be innovative. Uh, Kraft Heinz, you know, Chipotle hiring away Taco Bell's CEO. And so there's a lot of momentum. And to your point, there's a great recognition that change has to happen. And the more innovative we can become, the more ahead we can get as far as our our data collection, our sustainability efforts, I think we're going to be better for it. Is that a fair assessment? That's that's absolutely. So I like that. Do something because we do, you know, so pivot. You stole that word from those, you know, high paid consultants out there. But but the thing is, do something because it's the right thing to do. Your, Your business, your operation will be better off. And that's that mental hump we have to get over, right? It's that this isn't a penalty. This is actually an opportunity, and we started out there, that this is a time of such great opportunity. The technology now lets us know things that we've never known before. You know, I'm excited on my farm, you know, to actually learn more about soil health and how to think about managing soil health in a way that then, you know, that the, you know, you, you improve the, you know, the productivity and the resilience of, you know, the crops that you're growing because you're actually managing the environment that they're growing in rather than just managing the crop itself. Absolutely. So always be learning, always be looking for opportunities to learn and to document that information because, you know, it's the way of the future. It's the way of the present, frankly. So uh, right. 
Mary, it's been a pleasure getting to visit with you. She is Mary Shellman, a former director of the Harvard Business School's Agribusiness Program. Again, uh, serves today on the advisory boards of Crop Enhancement and Village Capital and also continues to farm in Kentucky. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your time and expertise as we continue these conversations about what it means to build consumer trust in food. We appreciate it. Thank you, Nate. All right. Well, we'll be back next time with another episode of the Trust in Food podcast. Until then, remember, we can improve consumer trust in food one liter at a time.